So if you've been here with us a few weeks, you know um, a little bit about what this series is about. Solomon is a king in Israel, and he lives roughly a thousand years before the time of Jesus. He's the son of King David, and he's ruling and reigning from his capital city in Jerusalem. Here's what we've learned about this guy from the last few weeks. And if some of these, these words don't make sense to you because you weren't here, you can go back and listen to the stuff online because it's, it's really important, all the things that's going on. Because so far, Solomon is like the man, right? Solomon is the Shalom king. His name Shlomo comes from the, the root of the word Shalom. He's the Shalom king and he's ruling and reigning in the city of Shalom. And he's doing so in a garden-like paradise called the promised land. And he's doing all of this while maintaining a Shema heart. If you don't know what that is, that's okay. We can review the previous weeks. And he's resisted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And by his wisdom, he can cut between truth and lie, life and death. And at the end of last week, he finished building the temple of God, the house of God. Now, the question at this point is, he's built the temple, he's built the house of God, but will God dwell in it? Will God see fit to live in this house built by human hands and by Solomon. This is where we pick up, 1 Kings 8. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the leaders of the fathers' houses of the people of Israel, before King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled to King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. And all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark and they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meaning, and the holy vessels that were in the tent, the priests and the Levites brought them up. So this is a big deal. The temple's built, but now we are going to bring in the ark of the covenant. What's the ark of the covenant? Well, in one sense, the ark is, is and this is the, the least sense, but it's, it's true at least in some sense, it's, it's just a box, It's a big box that contains two stone tablets that contain the law that God gave Moses. But in the the more truer sense, this box is much more important because it's not just any box. On top of this box are two cherubim, and these two cherubim sit on top of the ark. And there's scriptures that speak of God speaking through the two cherubim. And there's scriptures that speak of God having this box, this ark, function as his footstool. And you combine all these images in scripture and you get this greater image where the ark of the covenant is the throne of God. So God is seated, enthroned between the cherubim and the box, the ark is his footstool. So where the ark goes, it's like you are meant to picture the king God himself sitting and ruling and reigning from that throne. So now you're about to bring that throne into the house of God and the question is all the more important. Is God actually gonna go sit on his throne? Is he going to live in this house made by hands? Is he going to do it? And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. Then the priest bought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the most holy place underneath the wings of the cherubim. So it may not seem like it to you, but you gotta understand, like this is next level tiptoe anticipation. 
the priests are bringing in the throne of God, his footstool, and they're bringing it into the inner sanctuary, which is called the Holy of Holies, the place where God is going to uniquely manifest his presence. And they're bringing it in, and everyone is hoping and praying, God, dwell with your people. Be with us. Be with us. What happens? When the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So God shows up. He, he takes up residence. He's going to dwell with his people. He sits on his throne in the Holy of Holies, and the glory, his glory, appears as a cloud. The Hebrew word for glory here is kavod, and its root, the root of the word deals with something that's heavy. It's that which is heavy. And it's this idea that the glory of God is a heavy thing. Now, that, you've, you've experienced similar things when, when there's moments in life where you have such an awe-filled moment or a transcendent moment that it feels heavy. So if you're a parent, picture the time you first held your first child. Like you're happy and there's excitement, but isn't there a kavod to it? There's, there's a weightiness to that moment, right? It's like, it's weighty. God's glory is so weighty in this moment that the priest can't even stand to minister. The glory is like that strong in that room. And so Solomon then begins to give a prayer of thanksgiving, of worship, praise, and dedication. I want to show you a couple pieces of it. 1 Kings 8.22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. So picture it like there's, there's, there's worship and celebration and this, this, the temple would have been, like the people there might have not seen anything as beautiful as this temple. Like architecturally, this is incredible. The glory cloud's there. Solomon's there. He spreads out his hands. He's standing there and he says, oh Lord, there's no one like you. There's no one like you. And heaven above or earth beneath, you are beyond us. And you are faithful. You keep your covenant showing us steadfast love. Hebrew word for steadfast love here is chesed. And steadfast love is a great, is a great way to translate it, but it's this idea that God is faithful to his covenant He's unrelenting in his commitment to stay true to his promises. So think of like wedding vows. Like, I'm going to be with you till death do us part. God is unrelenting in his commitment to fulfill the vows. You've given a steadfast love. You're unrelenting in your commitments. And then Solomon asks a question that some of you might actually already be asking. He says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain you, how much less the house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord, my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, my name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place. Okay, here's the question. But will God indeed dwell on earth? And 
because Solomon knows something. If you grew up in church or you're familiar with like classic Christian teaching, you're familiar with the idea that God is everywhere, right? We tell people God is everywhere. Okay, the theological word for God is everywhere is omnipresence. God is omnipresent. There's, God is everywhere. You cannot escape his presence. But if he's everywhere and you cannot escape his presence, why do we need a temple where God will live? Isn't he, like once we build it, doesn't he already live there by default because he's everywhere? And so Solomon, he's like, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Like this doesn't, like what? And, and here's, here's the idea. Solomon knows God is omnipresent. Someone knows God is everywhere. But what they're asking and what the temple is accomplishing is God uniquely and in a special way manifesting his presence for his people. God is infinite, he's everywhere, but we are finite creatures. And it's like we need a a, a demonstration that he is indeed living among his people. So he's asking for God to show up, but at the same time, Solomon's like, listen to what he says. Will God dwell on the earth? The highest heaven cannot contain him. Solomon knows the highest heaven, the earth, all of creation cannot contain the infinite, almighty, omnipresent God. Nevertheless, please show up in a unique way and dwell among your people. And then he says, the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he might incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, his rule, which he commanded to our fathers. The Lord God be with us. Don't leave us or forsake us. Solomon is asking for God to continue to be with them. And here he, he strikes a chord with like, like all humans, like on our deepest level. As humans, we have this deep longing, whether we are consciously aware of it or not, to to want to know God and to be known by him. And we want to know that he's near, that he's with us. Some of you might remember times in your life where life was hitting you hard, man. And sometimes without even consciously thinking about it, you have a prayer. You're just like, God, please be with me. Lord, be with me. Please be with me. And in that trial, in that storm, whatever it may be, there's a sense in which the human soul just like automatically, just be with me, Lord. Please don't leave me, don't forsake me, be near to me. And this is the prayer of Solomon. Now, as you can see, the temple is a very, very big deal and the scriptures give it a lot of attention. But this raises a question, why do we even need a temple to begin with? Why do we need a temple? And so what I'd like to do is do like what I call like a short, a short little side mission from the official Solomon series and go off this little this trail to the side and the side mission and, and wrestle with this question, why do we need a temple to begin with? And in order to answer that question, we have to go back to where we've been going back for the entirety of this Solomon series. We have to go back to the garden. We have to go back to Eden. Because when God creates his ideal for humanity, his ideal for creation, is God dwelling with his people in a garden paradise. There's there's no barrier, there's no hindrance. God is dwelling with his people in the garden. That's the creation ideal. So you see this in this one verse, Genesis 3.8. And they heard the sound of the Lord, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. There was a time where human beings 
lived in a paradise. And they lived with God to such a degree that he just walks among them. Now, again, God is not man. This is what we call anthropomorphic language, but it's still communicating this idea. God's with his people, living in a garden paradise. Everything is going to plan. He wants, he's dwelling with his people, which is like crazy to think about. Like, because we can just, okay, God wants to dwell with his people. No, like, it's like, wait a second. Infinite almighty God wants to dwell with finite humans? He wants to be with them? He wants to live with them? Think about it like this. Let's, you go into your backyard and you see a bunch of ants and you say, oh, my ants, how I long to live among you. I want to be with you, my ant people, and I will live and walk among you in the cool of the day. Like, but follow this. The distance between an ant and you is a shorter distance than the distance between you and infinite almighty God. Nevertheless, infinite almighty God says, I'm going to dwell with these people. I am going to create and I am going to dwell with these people. It's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable. So it's great. Everything's perfect. God lives with men in a, in a garden paradise. But then, as we know, things go bad. Uh, Adam and Eve choose to listen to the serpent. They sin, they rebel against God, and there's this exile, this kicking out of the garden that happens. Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, and they're blocked from coming back into the garden, blocked from coming back into the presence of God. And what's blocking their path back in? Two, cherubim. Well, we've got a flaming sword, too. So in the temple, what do you see guarding the presence of God? Two, cherubim. And it's as if to say the temple is in some sense bringing us back to the garden, bringing us back to, to be with our God. Now, oftentimes people could kind of seem like, man, they got kicked out of the garden. That was, that was kind of messed up. But you have to understand that Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden is actually a mercy from God. It's a mercy. And there's many reasons for this. One of them is because God didn't want them to live in a forever state of this fallen condition. But then two, um, there's a mercy because there's this idea in scripture that when something is completely unholy and unfit, it is brought into the presence of infinite, holy, almighty God that like they cease to exist. So in the Bible, you, you hear things like, no man could see God and live. Or there's a story of the prophet Isaiah who's brought in to the throne room of God and there's, what, two angelic supernatural beings guarding the presence of God. And even with that, he's like, uh-oh, I'm near God. Do you remember what he says? Woe is to me, for I am undone. He says, I'm dead. I'm dead. I don't know why I'm still even going to say I'm dead, because I'm dead. It's like, and then what's his reason? For I am a man of unclean lips. I, as an unholy man, am being brought into the presence of God. I'm not making it out of here. I'm not making it out of here. So, oftentimes you might hear things like, you know, you can't get close to the presence of God because God can't be in the presence of sin. And this is like a complete misunderstanding. God can be in the presence. He's infinite almighty. God doesn't hurt God to be in the presence of anything. He's infinite almighty God. It's not that he can't be in the presence of sin. We can't be in the presence of his glory. Think of it like this. 
Let's say uh, you're in a rocket ship and you're flying to the sun. You, as you're flying to the sun in your rocket ship, you're not going like, hey, we need to be careful. We're getting kind of close to the sun. We might hurt him. We don't want to, we don't want to hurt the sun. We're getting kind of close. No, the, the rocket ship can't hurt the sun. If you get close to the sun, what happens to you? You die because the sun is a consuming fire. Your rocket ship is unfit to be brought into the heat of the consuming fire. Likewise, God's presence is pure and holy, and you can't just bring in any old rocket ship to that. He is a consuming fire. So there's this mercy established by God. There's a mercy. And so we see this play out because immediately in the book of Exodus, after God delivers his people from Egypt and Pharaoh, he takes them into the wilderness, and what does he do? He says, build a tabernacle. Build a tabernacle. Why? Because I am going to live in this tabernacle so I could be among my people. But there's a massive problem, if you remember, because his people do what immediately after they're freed in the Exodus account? They do just like Adam and Eve. They rebel, they eat the forbidden fruit, but this time it's not a fruit, it's a golden calf. So there's a golden calf that they're worshiping. And so God is like, what what are you guys doing? And so the tabernacle is built precisely because of this reason. How does the holy, righteous, almighty God dwell among a sinful people? And this is why for us modern people, the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy can be confusing, but it's a whole system that's set up called the Law of Moses and is giving rules and regulations by which unholy people can be made right so that this holy God could live among them. That's the idea. And the tabernacle is like a mobile home version of the temple. This is kind of be confusing because oftentimes those terms are used interchangeably, but there's like a mobile home version in the wilderness and it's a tent and God lives in this tent and he dwells with his people and he moves with them and as they go all throughout the wilderness wanderings, but once Israel settles permanently in the promised land, it's time to build a permanent house, which is the temple. So that's the difference. When you hear tabernacle, it's the mobile version of God's presence being among his people. Now, what's his motivation for being among his people? Exodus 25, 8, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Now, again, think about the ants. Feel this. God wants to dwell with his people. He wants to be with us. He wants to be with you. And this is why there's like, what we read the previous weeks, there's like chapter after chapter of descriptions of like the temple and the tabernacle and why? Because it's a big deal. And do you remember when you go into the temple, what does it look like? There's angels and palm trees and flowers. All of that's going around because when you go into the tabernacle or the temple, it's as if you're going back to the garden because God's presence is here and he's dwelling with his people. Listen to how the tabernacle functions. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So again, you see this glory cloud. In the tabernacle and the temple, 
God uniquely manifests his presence in this cloud of kavod to let his people know, I'm with you. I'm with you. And the motivation is so that God can dwell with his people. Now, this is very important. You have to understand that the tabernacle and temple are both accommodations. They are not the ideal. Remember the ideal. It's a garden paradise where there's no hindrance. There's no cherubim blocking the way. You're in a garden-like paradise where you live with God. God walks with you in the cool of the day. In the, of the day. Tabernacle and temple are accommodations in that this is how God will dwell with an unholy people. And why is that that accommodation necessary? Because you had two other options. Either God can say, you're an unholy people who don't deserve my presence, and so I will abandon you. Or he could say, you can stay unholy just like you are, but guess what? I'm moving into the neighborhood, and guess what happens? You die. The rocket ship ain't fit to go into the presence of the sun. So you had two options, destruction or abandonment. The temple exists in the space between destruction and abandonment. It is the accommodation, not the ideal. Between destruction and abandonment, there exists a place on earth where God can take you impartial back to the garden to be with him. God will dwell with his people. After the tabernacle time, and they make it to Israel, the Israelites are in the promised land, they build the permanent structure, that is the temple, and that's where we picked up. Someone builds the temple, and guess what? The glory cloud, the kavod, comes down and it fills, and it's so thick the priests can't even stand there, and everything is going great, and it's fantastic. Flash forward a few hundred years, and guess what happens? The same thing that always happens, the pattern repeats itself. Adam and Eve choose the apple, the fruit, In the wilderness, we choose the golden calf. And then hundreds of years after the life of Solomon, people are absolutely committed to worshiping false gods. And so because of their sin and their decadence, the Babylonian empire comes in and destroys Jerusalem and destroys the temple, and they take all the remaining survivors off into exile to be their servants in Babylon. Now, um, God's people being brought to a foreign land where they will be slaves and servants. Does this sound familiar? This is Egypt and Pharaoh and slavery all over again. This is also getting kicked out of the garden all over again. And so when the temple is destroyed, there's this question about where's God at this kavod, this glory cloud, where is it? Listen to the prophet Ezekiel describe this scene. It's it's, it's horrific. The prophet Ezekiel, speaking of the presence of the Lord, says, then the cherubim lifted up their wings with their wheels besides them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went out from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. God's presence, his glory, leaves the the rubble of the temple. And God's people are then off in slavery. It's Egypt all over again. It's Pharaoh all over again. Now, many decades after that, Faithful Israelites, faithful Jews come back into the promised land and start building the temple again. And this is something that many people aren't familiar with because it's, it's at a time of biblical history where there's not much knowledge. And there's, there's a great gap in the Bible in the intertestamental period. But nevertheless, what you need to know is after that first temple's destroyed, people come back and they rebuild the temple. 
It's the second temple, but it's not the same thing. It's not as glorious. It's not as awesome. And, and this is what's interesting. Nowhere is there mention in the intertestamental literature or the scriptures of the cloud of glory, the tangible expressions of God's presence returning to that second temple. It's not there. Now, really quick, remember what we talked about omnipresence. I'm not saying God wasn't in that temple in some sense. He is obviously there. And maybe he was um, there to a greater degree and he was manifesting his presence in some, in some way, but for sure he was not doing it in the same way that he did in the tabernacle and the temple of Solomon. And so there's like this kind of feeling. It's like, huh, this is not the, the same thing. That temple is what's standing in the life of Jesus, the second temple. Now Herod comes along and he expands what the, what the, what the faithful Jews did uh, to build the temple. He expands it and makes it even more big and more beautiful and it looks like it's more awesome than ever before. Nevertheless, that cloud of glory is never said to be there. It's very strange. Okay, as that temple, the second temple is standing, we enter into the life of Jesus. Listen to how one of the first followers of Jesus describes the coming of Jesus. John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the word. Now later, John establishes that this word figure is Jesus. So in the beginning was the word, this Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. So in the beginning was this Jesus, this word, and he's with God in the beginning. And this Jesus, this word is God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. It's this idea that this, this one who's walking among you, this Jesus of Nazareth, he's not just a normal man. He was in the beginning with God himself. And you have to understand that he was in the beginning with God because he also was with God and he is God. And this person has come down. Now listen to this, John 1.14. And this Jesus, this word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The word who was God is dwelling among us. Does this sound familiar? God dwelt with humanity, with the temple, the tabernacle, and in the garden. And now he's saying the word, Jesus, is dwelling among us. But it goes even further because we have seen his glory. We've seen this, this son, who is the word, also has a glory. We've seen his glory. And in seeing his glory, we see the glory of the Father. But it goes even further than that because it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt. The Greek word for dwelt here is skenao. And skenao literally means to tabernacle among us. The reason why in English it's not translated tabernacle is because we don't have a verb called tabernacling. We lack the vocabulary. But the way this would literally read, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He was tabernacling with us. Which for the first Jewish readers, their mind would know exactly what that means. In the tabernacle and in the temple, God's presence dwelt. 
and surrounding the presence of God in the, in the tabernacle was tent walls. And then in the permanent structure of the temple, there was literal walls. So God had always dwelt with his people surrounded by walls of the temple. Now God is dwelling among his people, not wrapped in walls made of human hands, but he's wrapped in the walls of human flesh. God, Jesus, the word is tabernacling with us, not in a tent, but in a human body. And when you see him, when you see his glory, you see the glory of the father. When you see him, you see God. God is once again dwelling with his people. And so in Jesus, you see the true temple. You see the true presence. In seeing the face of Jesus, you see the face of God. In seeing the face of Jesus, you see the salvation of humanity. Now what happens though? What happens? The same pattern repeats itself like it always does. Adam and Eve choose the fruit. In the wilderness, we choose the golden calf. In the days of the kings of Israel, we choose false gods. And in the time when God himself walked among the earth, walked among his people, we united and said, crucify him. Give us the golden calf. Give us the fruit. Give us the false gods. Crucify that man. Kill him. And so the pattern repeats itself like it always does. But, as you know, there's good news. Because although Jesus is crucified, he resurrects in power and glory on the third day, and then he ascends to his father. But he doesn't abandon us, and he doesn't destroy us, which he probably should have done. What does he do? He says, I am going to send you my presence. I will be with you. And he sends us his spirit. And then the first Christians would go around the Roman Empire saying things like this. If you are a follower of Jesus, don't you know that your body as an individual and then God's people collectively as the church are the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is a way of saying God is with you. God's with you. He didn't leave you or forsake you. He didn't abandon you. He didn't destroy you. He has found a way for his holy presence to dwell among an unholy people. He's with you. He's with you. Did you know this? Like, God wants to be with you. God wants to be with you. Now, when I say that, God wants to be with you, we need, we need to unpack that and correct two possible errors. And they're like, two types of opposite types of errors. The first error that happens is when you hear like, oh, God wants to be with me. You can sort of begin to picture a God who needs you, is lacking, maybe he's lonely. Um, and so God, God needs to be with me. And so that's one type of error. On the other end, it's like, oh, well, that sounds really good, but that possibly can't be true about me. So let me deal with the first. When I say God wants to be with you, I don't mean that God wants to be with you in the sense that like he's lonely and he needs you and he's like, I can never, I can never go another day without you. God is completely self-sufficient in his own being. He lacks nothing. He needs nothing. For all eternity, he was basking in the bliss of his own glory. He doesn't need you. He's not acting out of lack of being. So what is he acting out of? God is perfectly good, and all of his ways are good. And in his wisdom, he sees fit that it is a good thing to share of his goodness with other created creatures. And so God creates, 
in order that might, he, he might share of his own goodness to be expressed among other people. But it's, it's not done out of need or lack. It's done out of the abundance of his own good nature. Now, let me make that sense with an analogy. And this is just an analogy. So all analogies break down at a certain point, but this will help. Picture a father, a good father, who loves his kids, and he's strong. He's a healthy individual. Like he, He's a good dude. And um, it's a very hot day in Gilroy. And he gets off of work, and he's driving home, and he's going by the grocery store. And he goes, oh, I should surprise my kids with ice cream. And like he begins to get excited. Now, the father's motivation isn't like, oh, I need to surprise my kids. I hope they love me. I hope they think that I'm a good dad. I hope, there's, there's not a, it's not a, out of lack. It's out of the abundance of his love for his children, out of the abundance of his good, own goodness that he wants to make them happy. It's his joy to make them filled with joy. And so he goes to the grocery store and he's like, I'm gonna make it even better, man. We're not just gonna get one thing. I'm gonna do one of those things where you get all those little tiny pieces of ice, little ice cream containers. I'm gonna pick all my kids' favorite types of ice cream. And this father knows all the different flavors that his kids likes because he's a, he's a good dad. And he, you know, he's getting excited. He opens the door and the kids say, dad's home. And then he's just like, what's up? Ice cream tie, oh my gosh, we love you, dad, you're the best. Oh my gosh, thank you, dad. Now, he's, again, that wasn't out of need. He's not like, oh, I'm so, I hope my kids love me. It, it is his joy to bring joy to his children. He acts, he acts not out of need or some type of lack in his own being, it's out of the abundance of and love of his own good nature. And so it's for their good that he does this. But their good isn't at his expense. It, it, it brings, it, it, it's his joy as well. This is very important, especially in the modern world, modern culture. I've heard people say things that are basically saying, like, why did God create? God created because he was lonely and he wanted a family. God did not create out of need or lack. He is perfect in and of himself. He creates because he's so good, he wants to share in his goodness with people like us. He's the good father. Okay, so that, like, that's the one air that we can go when we say God wants to be with you. But there's another, another air that probably um, m- most of us, if, if not most, many of us are dealing with or wrestling with. Because when, when, he- when you hear this, like God wants to be with you, you might kind of intellectually go, okay, the Bible says God wants to be with you. Or maybe you apply that to like everybody. But no, like what I'm telling you as an individual, as an individual today, God wants to be with you. You, personally, you. He wants to be with you. Not out of lack or need, but for your good and his glory out of the abundance of his loving nature. He wants to be with you. Now, what happens is there's all kinds of reasons that we can develop that, that block that from taking root in our innermost. There's all kinds of things that we could say, all kinds of things that can happen to us, all kinds of things that have happened to us that, that make us say something like, nah, he doesn't want to be with me. Like, I get it, I get it. Okay, he wants to be with the world, blah, blah, blah. He doesn't want to, like, not me personally. He doesn't want to be with me personally. 
Okay, maybe, he, okay, if he does, it's, he's, he's, he's gonna do it because he has to, because by nature he's a loving God and he'll put up with me, but he, does, he doesn't like me. Maybe his nature loves me, but he doesn't like me, he doesn't wanna be with me. Do you feel this? Like, you don't actually think that the good father wants to be with you. And many of you have good reasons for feeling that way, right? There's all kinds of reasons you may be feeling that. Maybe, maybe growing up your dad left, right? My dad left when I was six years old. So if my dad could leave me, if I wasn't worthy of him sticking around, you're telling me that there's some even more holy, righteous figure up there, like he wants to be with me. Yeah, right. My, my own dad didn't even love me. My da- if my dad doesn't love me, then I'm not a very lovable person. God doesn't want to be with me. Or maybe your parents divorced when you were little. And as a little kid, you told yourself, you know, um, mom and dad didn't think I was worth figuring it out for. Mom and dad, I wasn't worth them staying together. However much they love me, it wasn't enough for them to sort of work it out. So, nah, God doesn't want to be with me. I wasn't even worth it to them. You know, little kids do this stuff all the time, right? Some of you are 50 years removed from those events. And the little kid in you is still saying, I'm not worth it. Maybe, maybe it wasn't something that happened in your childhood. Maybe it was something that happened recently. Maybe, maybe five years ago, you had a spouse leave you. You know, if you're telling me that God has steadfast love, that he will always stay true to his commitment to me, well, all of my earthly examples, no one stayed true to their commitments. The person who swore in front of eyewitnesses that they would be with me faithful till death do us part, they broke covenant. It's like, God isn't gonna, God, ain't gonna, God doesn't wanna be with me. God doesn't wanna be with me. Or maybe it's not even some traumatic thing. It's just like, you know, you were always kind of on the out. Didn't have many friends. You know what I'm talking about? Didn't have many friends and you, you often found yourself not being the one invited. You're not invited. You didn't have many friends. And that stuck with you even into adulthood. It's like, no, you know what? I'm lonely. I don't have many friends. And when I do make friends, it kind of feels like they don't even want to be with me. They don't want to hang out. They don't want to be with me. And, and, and you're saying like, no, if just normal human beings find me too boring, they don't want to be with me. God doesn't want to be with me. He doesn't want to be with me. So there's a host of reasons why you might be here today going like, okay, God wants to be with me. Okay, yeah, right. From this childhood trauma, from this divorce, from this thing that happened, or just because you don't have many friends. There's a thousand different reasons that, that let you kind of believe it maybe up here intellectually, but it doesn't take root like deep down. But here's the thing, what you have to understand, no matter what's in the past, no matter what you've been through, your finite experiences here in this earthly domain do not change the immutable promises of God. And no matter what's happened to you, no matter who's left you, no matter who's abandoned you, no matter if the whole world rejects you, there is one who will not reject his children when he comes to them. Even if the world abandons you, he will not. He is faithful to his covenant promises. He is steadfast till the end. If the whole world rejects you, he will not. He wants to be with you. Whether you feel like it or not, whether you believe it or not, 
He wants to be with you. Maybe you have a different excuse. You're like, okay, well, I didn't have anything of those things happen to me and I don't have any of this pain I'm working through, but you know what? I know God doesn't wanna be with me because you know what? I'm a pretty messed up person. I've done some pretty messed up things. I've sinned big time. I'm a pretty crummy person. I've lived a pretty crummy life. And oftentimes Christians, because we wanna be encouraging, when people come to us like that, we immediately try to encourage them like, no, you're not that bad of a person. You're not that crummy. No, you know who you are. You know what you've done. You know the type of person you are. You don't deserve it. So when you tell yourself, God, God, nah, look, here's the thing. You may be saying, There's, I am too much of a wretch. I'm too crummy. I'm too sinful of a person for God to want to be with me. Here is the point of the temple. The whole point of the temple is precisely that. God will find a way to dwell among sinful humanity. That's the point. The whole point is that he will find a way to be with sinful humanity. He won't leave them in that state, but he's gonna find a way. So no matter where you're at today, what you're telling yourself, God wants to be with you, not out of lack or need, for your good and his glory out of the abundance of his steadfast love. And you can come to him freely. His very name expresses this idea. What did they say to call baby Jesus? Do you remember this? It's the Christmas story. Call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel is a Hebrew phrase. It means God with us. The name of Jesus expresses this idea that God is unrelenting in his pursuit to dwell with his people. God is unrelenting in his commitment to dwell with his people. God is with you, he is for you. He wants to be with you. Now, remember Solomon's prayer. He says this, The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and keep his commandments, his statutes and his rules which he commanded our fathers. Remember, Lord, don't leave us, don't forsake us. Be with us. Here's the answer to Solomon's prayer. The concluding words of the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. When you put your faith in Christ, You are adopted into his family. You have a place at his table and he is with you even to the end of the age. Do you feel this today? God wants to be with you for your good and his glory. Now, here's the thing. We now experience the presence of God and the love of God, but we experience it in part. We don't experience it in full. But God gives us this promise that he is with us always, even to the end of the age, where you go, well, what's gonna happen at the end of the age? It's like, that's where he's like, I'm tired of putting up with you. I made the promise, I'm, no, no, no. 
God makes the promises to believers that he will be with us even to the end of the age. What happens after this? What happens after that? See, in one very real sense, you can say the entire Bible is about God, God's unrelenting pursuit to dwell with his people. In the garden, in the tabernacle, in the temple, in Jesus, in the spirit-filled church, and then the end. The entire sweep is about God's unrelenting pursuit to dwell with his people. Well, what's that end? How does it end? What happens at the end of the age? This is how the story ends, the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, this is the great announcement in the book of Revelation, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is where the story began. The dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We now experience in part that which we will experience in full. He will never leave us nor forsake us. But there's still something coming. No tears, no crying, no pain. Can you picture the surprise our Father has waiting for us? Can you picture the surprises that our good Father has for us? If an earthly father brings us joy with ice cream, can you imagine what this is going to be like? See, the book of Revelation is saying it's, it's, it's as if the whole creation has become the holy of holies. God dwells in the temple and the tabernacle and the holy of holies, and Revelation is trying to get you to see the whole creation becomes the holy of holies because God's presence will feel it. The glory of the Lord will fill the entire creation. The entire creation will be a garden-like paradise. Can you imagine the surprise? Now, if you think I'm pushing this too far by saying, like, the whole creation is a holy of holies, listen to how the book of Revelation ends this section. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun, no need of moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. The whole created order filled with the light and glory of the lamb of God. God wants to be with you. Do you know that? He looks at you and says, I want to be with you. And so today we come in faith because of the work of Jesus and we just give him thanks that you would want to dwell among us, that you find a way for almighty, holy, infinite God to dwell among a people like us. We know, Lord, the highest heaven can't contain you, but yet you send your spirit so that I could be a temple of the Holy Spirit. Friends, God loves you.
He's a good father. He has so much in store for you. Trust him. Know he wants to be with you. Let's stand as we take communion. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he said, this is my body, it's given to you, it's given to you. And we are called to remember this. And we remember what it took for God to be among his people. So if there is someone here today who doubts that God actually wants to be with them, do you wanna know how much God did in order that he might be with you? What did God do? He leaves heaven to seek you out. He comes to seek out the lost sheep and he goes and lays down his life and dies on a cross. How much does God love you? How far did he go to bring you into his fold? He goes to the cross and into death itself. You are loved, you are known. He is for you, he is not against you and he is near to you today. So Lord, we remember what it took for you to draw us close. Likewise, Jesus took the cup, the blood of the new covenant. It's his blood shared on our behalf. And as long as we take this, we are pledging our allegiance to declare the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns. So help us to be faithful in the interim, Lord, where we see in part what we will one day see in full. And help us to be encouraged to know if you are a follower of Jesus, you will never spend another moment without him. Do you know this? If you've trusted him, you will never spend a moment without him. You will never be alone. You will never be completely forsaken. You will never be completely rejected. You're never going to live a day without him ever again. So Lord, help us to be faithful. Father, we turn now to worship your son. We're like children who have been so blessed by our good heavenly Father. Help our hearts and minds to be fixated on you. You are so good and you are so good to us for our good and for your glory. So today, let us give you glory and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.